welcome to Catholic Stuff You Should Know, a J10 initiative. Ten, nine, eight, seven, two, six, one, <laughs> zero, and we're blowing Have you ever seen a? Uh, this is Father Mike. And Jacob. And you're listening to Catholic Stuff You Should Know, a J10 initiative. Uh, have you ever listened to uh, or watched one of those um, rocket launches? I watched the, I think it was the SpaceX one um, a couple years ago when they sent the first manned, uh, U.S. manned launch to the space station or whatever. Oh. And they had the countdown. I think they, uh, they I watched it the first time and they got delayed because of uh, um, cloud cover. They thought a storm was rolling in, so they oh. couldn't go. So it was like they had like the hour countdown, and then they canceled it. And then a so, couple of days later, we got the ten. Oh, nine, here, yeah, that's eight, pretty exciting. Seven. More then, exciting, the ball drop for uh, New Year's. Not at all. The rocket. Rocket. All the way. I know. Yeah, yeah definitely. <laughs> um, are they shooting them off all the time? I don't know. I don't think so. I kind of feel like it was an event once upon yeah. a time, and now. I think they launch a lot of uh, there's too many events. Un- unmanned ones, uh, launching satellites off all the time, I think. But uh, manned events, manned rocket launches, I think are a lot, lot more rare. Do you think um, dark matter is a spiritual reality? <laughs> spiritual reality. I like to think so. I don't know what... I don't know. I guess well, by be, definition, mm, we don't know what it is. It's interesting because it'd be a bleed. It's like this force acting upon us that we can't measure. Is that spiritual or is that within the material realm? Oh boy, I don't know. I would. I'm not good enough at metaphysics. I'm enough of like a modern and a um, scientific mind that I think we'll be able to keep measuring and figure out what it is. My uh, and I medieval scholastic, uh, I guess desires are that it is the angels pushing the. Oh. The planets around. I don't it's know. The angels growing <laughs> fatter and moving things. No, it's funny. I mean, so much of it's just theoretical, right? Yeah. Um, we've got, you know, we've got dark matter. We've got, I've, I was reading about white holes uh, instead of black holes. Oh, really? And I don't know it, anything it, about that. It could be the bleed. You know, one, one theory is it's the bleed. Everything that gets sucked in by a black hole gets spat out in another universe Whoa. as a white hole. It's kind of like generating. And that's how you still find this infinite regress of like, where's the beginning of matter? Yeah. But. I think uh, I think there's a lot more we don't know that we could understand about how physics operate, um, for sure. So I think we could, whatever that force is that we can't see, we can't um, detect, but is uh, is moving, um, or or expanding the universe. Okay, I think we'll get to it. Okay, they're measuring. I think I like uh, that. There's mystery. There's lots of mystery yeah. out there. There's uh, these dark matter detectors like buried deep deep under like mountains what? Um, that are so minusculely like fine-tuned to detect and they're um they're all over not all over there's a few of them around the globe so that they can kind of detect uh if it's a, an anomaly or if they're actually measuring something i don't know exactly how it works but all right that's you, another youtube sorry another yeah, I was talking. Rabbit I was hole? talking. What do they call it? Rabbit always hole? rabbit holes. I was talking uh, astronomy with Father Sean a couple, mo- maybe a couple weeks ago, a month ago, and uh, Archbishop comes up. A couple, I guess he listened, and he's like, "I didn't know you were so into science." <laughs> oh yeah. I was like, "Uh oh, Archbishop listens." 
So. I like that stuff, but I don't feel like I have much chops. But oh, what, me neither. Me neither. Do I have chops? Me neither. Okay, so my yeah. cousins. Uh, wait a minute. So today is the feast of Mother Teresa, Teresa. of Calcutta. Saint Teresa of Cal. Mother Teresa, commonly known Mother as Mother Saint Teresa. Ter- Saint Mother Teresa of Calcutta. Of Calcutta. There you go. <laughs> um, September fifth, and this morning I had the pleasure of celebrating. Well, con-celebrating Mass. The celebrant was one Father Nathan Goble. And uh, with the missionaries of, of charity, the sisters that um, of the order that Mother Teresa started, you know. Um, there are now 4,500 missionaries of charity nuns In the throughout world. the world. That's incredible. Yeah. And, and everywhere they're, they're serving, their mission is um, they live really four vows, the common vows of religious poverty, chastity, and obedience. And then a, f- a fourth is uh, service of the poorest of the poor. And they really do it. I mean, they go to wherever they go, they say, who's poorest? Can we find there. the poorest? <laughs> and how can we live with them and serve them? Like, how, do, how can we be as poor as yeah. everybody else and serve them? And you've been I mean, kind of a, a pseudo-chaplain to them here in Denver, right? Or a yeah. co- you assist, you go and celebrate masses for them. Yeah, I've tried to stay close to the community, and yeah. they have, a, I mean, they have a long list of priests. I think it's kind of one of those pretentious things almost to say, <laughs> oh, I'm a chaplain for this really holy group, as if, like, I'm a good influence on them. Oh, no, they're a good <laughs> they're, influence on you. Yeah, yeah, they really are. But I do, um, I do find them just fun, and, they, you know, they're, like, very sisterly to me. Well, every, every priest I've talked to who goes and celebrates mass for them, um, always comes back. They're just like, I love visiting the sisters. Mm-hmm. Like, I haven't found one guy that's like, oh, I don't want to go do that. <laughs> yeah. Well, nuns are cool generally, so I don't want to pick favorites, but they're my favorite. <laughs> ah. um, Mother Teresa is like a great hero of mine and um, just has been an inspiration. And I think she's kind of followed me for a while. So, Have I, you been to Calcutta? I have not been okay. to Calcutta. Father Nathan yeah. has. Yeah. You know, he's had a relationship with them. Long, long-standing friendship. Very good. Have you? I have. You Back have? Back in 2012. Whoa. I went with the, uh, the Servants of Christ Jesus here in Denver. Sure. Um, I had just recently graduated. No, I was, uh, was going to be a senior in college. We went the summer before. Kind of did a pilgrimage to some, um, some of the holy sites, uh, the Basilica of St. Thomas in Chennai. Uh, built over his tomb. Um, the uh, tomb of St. Francis Xavier in Goa uh, was pretty cool. But we spent most of our time in Calcutta. And uh, the mother house um, of them sees is super cool, super simple, uh, but beautiful, well-kept, um, like super simple, like cement everything. Yeah. Um, and they wash it and sweep it every day. But right in the middle of the chapel, um, which is literally just like a cement room, with a nice altar and a nice crucifix. Like everything else is bare and simple. Uh, and you've got a holy hour there every morning with the sisters. And right in the back is the tomb of St. Mother Teresa oh, of Calcutta. Nice. Just right there. And like you go to so many, you were in Rome. So you go in these churches and there's saints everywhere. But yeah. it's kind of like distant, far, they're kind of behind glass or behind yeah, yeah. railings. And this is just right in the center of the chapel is her tomb. And you can pray with her, or, yeah. Yeah, whatever. So it's pretty cool. Hey, I love it. Um, yeah, it's just a beautiful, beautiful reality. And I think they're 
a real delightful example of just dedication to the Lord, absolute dedication to the Lord and to the will of God. They're not perfect, but they're, um, for me, they're really an inspiration and, and a beautiful example. Um, once upon a time, my cousins came out to Denver to, to see Mother Teresa when she came to town in mm-hmm. Denver. And I don't know the timing of this. I can't remember. And I don't think it was World Youth Day. I think it was before that. Um, or maybe after, whatever it was, they they flew out here. And um, I think it was their father, Wally, Pastor Wally, who brought them, um, you know, just because of interest in Mother Teresa. And the whole world was inspired by her <laughs> and her life. And just as a profound example of Christianity. And yeah. Um, so, yeah, my Uncle Wally is uh, a Lutheran pastor. And so... I was just thinking on that and how, how beautiful a holy life can be as an ecumenical yeah. gift. Ec- ecumenism is interest in and, and, and intentionally trying to unify Christians mm-hmm. um, with all these denominations, different kinds of Christians who disagree with each other and um, and have different practices and things. So I just thought it was beautiful. I mean... The, I went to, okay, so they, they came out to Denver to see Mother Teresa. And do you know what years that could have been? I don't know. I'm, for some reason, 97 is sparking my mind, but that's probably totally off. But it'd have, it have to be like late 80s or kind of early to late 90s. Yeah. Because World Youth Day was 93. That's right. So I don't know. I assume somewhere around there. Yeah. I can, I can Google. But I'm pretty, it. yeah, you Google. You Google you it. You keep talking. I'll look it up. And my cousins recently visited. So shout out um, to Teresa and Sarah and, uh, and a shout out, a special shout out to um, Sarah's family because they said they listen to the podcast sometimes. I was and, way wrong. Uh, uh, 89. Yeah. So wow. it was late 80s. You, you were closer. I thought it was late yeah. 90s, but. So, so, yeah, I'm just a Sorry, I interrupted the shout-out, the family shout-out. Hey, out. Uh, hey shout-out. <laughs> um, so, to Sarah and Dan and Gwyneth and Lydia. Now, Gwyneth and Lydia, the, the twins, they're the cutest twins in the world, very holy, very wise, and they just went to Bible camp for summer camp. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was it brought back real good memories for me. Of You know, I, I went to Camp Idrahaji, <laughs> At uh, for a few summers, I can't remember how many, but um, they would teach you Bible songs and this. You'd read scriptures, and they you'd have your Bible in hand for a lot of that, and you play you play games and hike around and you know do activities and stuff like that too. But um, Bible camp, and I remember. Yeah, some of those songs, the B-I-B-L-E, yes, that's the book for me. I stand alone on the word of God, the B-I-B-L-E. Wow, yeah. that's like a, yeah. like a dance. We like, had like kind of like Totus. the fire. You remember Totus to us? <laughs> oh, yeah. Did you teach Totus to us? I never taught Totus to us. I went, uh, I think I just went once or twice as a high schooler. I never even went as a kid when it's the most oh. fun. Yeah. Bible songs. So, yeah, you'd learn a lot of songs and stuff, yeah, just summer right. programs. Yeah. That one actually seems more like the Toast Toast. I remember the B A N A. Go, bananas. Go, go, bananas. Yeah. And then you just like freak out. It's like, 
basically wearing the kids out before you yeah that's like a total (laughs) one of those nonsense songs (laughs) yeah i think maybe the bible Uh, songs are more productive um, the pharisees um because it's not fair you see the sadducees are sad you see or something like Uh, that (laughs) i can't remember that the whole one but I don't want to be a Sadducee because they're sad, you see. I don't oh. want to be a, a Pharisee because they're not fair, you see. I think that's how it goes. Oh, well, that's kind of anti. <laughs> it's a bit, a bit anti-Sadducee. <laughs> yeah, I was like, person. wait a minute. I don't know. I just got a uh, – we, we had a cool study on the Pharisees, how um, – I mean, St. Paul was a Pharisee, proclaimed. Yeah. Uh, and then a lot of the kind of the early controversy in the church was the Pharisees were saying like – had become followers of Christ, but they're, how do we, how do we follow uh, the Jewish law with the fulfillment in Christ? What's, what's going on? So that was kind of the tension they were working out. Um, so you've got these Pharisees who are just very um, orthodox and good, and, and the f- impetus is good, right? Oh, but, yeah. But the, the practice might have been a little I severe. think that's, yeah, kind of lost to the, sometimes when you read the Gospels, Jesus is often engaging the Pharisees, yeah. and he's got strong mm-hmm. critiques of their legalism or yeah. the hypocrisy or ambitions, religious ambitions. I think what you don't n- notice is that Jesus was regularly engaging these people because he had great hopes that they yeah. would be. And I think... And the, were yeah. some r- like religious leaders. Yeah. They you, were really serious about the religious think a lot of them the were probably life. the early Christians that were yeah. in Jerusalem, too. Yeah, it's so, hard I to mean, know. Right after Pentecost, 3,000 were added to their number from Jerusalem. So. Yeah, and then another two grand yeah. and a whole... Um, what does it say? A whole crowd of priests? A whole <laughs> bunch of priests? A whole bunch of priests. Bunch is like a... Grape thing? <laughs> it's a catch-all. It's like, there's, there's a number. <laughs> All right. So um, I learned through my Lutheran elementary school, my uh, Lutheran mother grew up Lutheran. She became Catholic, but um, there's a whole Lutheran aesthetic that she taught us hmm. about love for the Bible as kind of the Bible is the central um, source of teaching. And then through the, so, so, through school, through the example of my mother, and then what was my third? Was it your aunt or your cousin? Oh, well, like Bible, 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 camp, uh, Bible, camp. Bible camp. Yeah, and vacation Bible school and stuff like that. Um, I developed this even at a young age, just like a, a fondness for the Bible and um, a, yeah, just a, a sense that this is really important and that this is a source of um, joy and a source of truth. Okay. So I really value that and um, love that about when I see a religious family. I like I was really moved and have been for a while um, by my cousin Sarah's dedication to uh, Christ and to her relationship with Jesus and um, and the, just the Christian life, you know, living the Christian life. And I think as the world becomes less and less religious. I feel a, a kinship more and more with any Christians. Mm-hmm. I think at one point I've kind of felt like, oh, we've got this this reformation that happened, what, 500 years ago, and it started this division that's been really frustrating, and I still mm-hmm. feel some of that. It's like, well, how do we get unified after so many years and so many um, changes and divisions? And there's just so... Uh, the the t- differences in teaching and understanding the Christian faith 
and how how the religion should be lived is just so different. It seems like I don't know what unity would exactly look like. Mm-hmm. And I know we're, we're going to keep working for that, keep praying for that. And um, But I, I think that there's something of a uh, just a, an appreciating each other and some of the goods that have come. Yeah, there's a, a bit of, well, wow, we're fighting over the 10 or 15% of things, and uh, we're fighting people over like 60 or 70% of a worldview, right? And so all of a sudden, the 10 or 15, while really important, um, doctrinal or theological yeah, questions uh, that we don't just throw out. We don't, ecumenism to the lowest common denominator is not productive. Um, but there's a sense of like, wow. There's, I mean, the, even the Christian worldview is gone in so many parts of the world or, um, you know, regions of the country or wherever it may be. Kind of that, that unitedness with the uh, yeah, other, other Christians. Just, is, I mean, I, I met People don't some, like Jesus. They yeah. mock God. They've forgotten the value of these things. And yeah. I don't understand that just simply yeah. because I think it's – even if you don't understand the depth of the theology and stuff, at least it's a nice – guy (laughs) you know giving good advice of how to be nice to people and you know sacrifice yourself and all these things yeah i um down in mexico some of my my good friends uh were baptist missionaries they were studying uh, spanish as well and um it was just really cool to kind of engage with them because their kind of baptist tradition was starting to kind of re-engage the patristics um and kind of see there's a fruit here to study. So when they'd gone to their, you know, their kind of Bible, they call it seminary, kind of Bible theology um, school, master's divinity type stuff, mm-hmm. uh, they were really engaging with kind of the patristics. And um, I thought that was kind of cool. We, we could have some conversations about early church. Yeah. Um, and there's there's maybe a sense of unity there that we can go back to, um, to try and find. Uh, but also just this sense of like, hey, you're down here to learn Spanish, to spread the gospel. I'm down here to learn Spanish to spread the gospel. Like, that's cool. We're kind of united in that. Now there's differences. Um, you know, obviously we we had some talks about, like, Mary and stuff. Yeah. But um, And it almost feels like it can feel like a turf war, yeah. especially in somewhere like Latin America. Yeah. We were all working in China. Yeah. Well, and that was my experience in Calcutta was, like, total, like, kind of unity in, in a foreign world. There's a sense of, um, yeah, like, oh, no, Mexico is so Catholic and you're going to, you're going to go, you know, change their mind or convert them to being Baptist. And um, I appreciate it. You know, uh, Mark, one time, just because um, it's, uh, we just want people to know Jesus. I want them to know Jesus fully, completely, like in the Eucharist yeah, and everything. there's a fullness. So, so, but I appreciate just kind of the impetus. So like, we just want to preach the gospel. Yeah. And I didn't get in, in the sense of, of the, most of the missionaries that I, I engaged with down there, it wasn't like, a, hey, we're going to go save them from the Catholics. Um, it, was, it was kind of a, the gospel needs to be spread. Yeah. And, and, Jesus um, needs to be known. So, uh, And the reality is, I mean, I met, I was, I was working, uh, talking with a lot of the same people, and it's, these are people my age to a little bit younger in a Catholic country. Mexico is a Catholic country. And they knew little to none of the faith. I was working with um, a lot of students that were helping as tutors and stuff, and they didn't really know the faith, um, or they'd rejected it because what it was was cultural or um, kind of family tradition or kind of tied up with a whole bunch of, 
you know, mysticism and spirituality and the culture, but a not lot really of superstitions too. Yeah. Not really, um, you know, a, a eternal binding truth. And, um, so the fact that I'd walk into a church and, you know, in my broken Spanish, be able to, they're like, Hey, what's that? I'm like, well, that's, you know, yeah. that's a crucifix. Or <laughs> what's, what's that depicting? Oh, that's depicting the stigmata of St. Francis. Oh, who's St. Francis, you know? And then I could, so just like relatively uh, generally known stuff to anybody who's kind of been through a catechism class just wasn't, wasn't really. Um, yeah. So it was, but it's cool. There's a need for teaching in every age. Yeah. Really. I mean, we can't take for granted that Jesus is known, just by virtue of the grandparents know yeah. Jesus. And that's almost part of the beauty and the, um, the adventure of mm-hmm. having a call to mission, like to evangelize yeah. like we do, and really that every Christian does. But um, we have this kind of privileged full-time career type of thing. Yeah. Maybe this is where you were going with uh, Mother Teresa. But when I was in Calcutta, the, uh, the community I was with were in their habits. They were wearing their, their normal um, religious attire, black, kind of all black. And uh, one of the sisters said, your primary mission is to the other missionaries and volunteers. Because a lot of people come from all over the world because they want to do a humanitarian good. Yeah. And Mother Teresa is known everywhere as the good, you know, loving sister to the poor. And it speaks to people. They want to participate in that. Um, but she says, you guys get to be a witness to the source of that, which is Jesus, which is the truth of the gospel. Um, so she kind of like put that on them specifically, but all of us as a group. Uh, and that really became true. And there were two guys, I can't remember their names now. They were both from Spain and we got assigned to the same site and we were talking with them. And like, why, why are you guys out here in Calcutta? Like from Spain. And it was fun because I was working on my Spanish. They were working on their English uh. kind of going back and forth, but they go, Oh, well we just, you know, between we had, we had a year off, uh, between school and like a college program or whatever. Like, we just wanted to go do something good for the world. That was the mode. Like, we knew Mother Teresa did good, so we came here. Yeah. And that's why, so her holiness, her attractiveness, her service pulled them. And I said, well, are you guys Catholic? And the response was, our parents are. And I was like, were you baptized? And I'm like, yeah, our parents were Catholic, you know. Yeah. So for them, they didn't have the faith. Um, they were baptized, but, you know, they hadn't been practicing since forever. Well, fast forward four or five days, uh, they're joining us for Mass before and kind of had met cool. with the priest and stuff. So there was like this, this Mother Teresa drew them in with her sanctity, with her holiness, and then we were able to kind of engage about faith. And it was a, there was a freedom to have that conversation. Like if I walk into the coffee shop down the street, I'm like, what are you living for? People are kind of like, well, who's this weird guy? Like what's yeah, going on? What are you living for? <laughs> um, you, but why, why are you bugging me? <laughs> but being in mission, uh, there was an ability to have those conversations. You almost had like a, a freedom to yeah. like ask the other, why are you here? Well, why are you here? You know, what are you looking for? What's, and and yeah. that started these conversations that sometimes are hard in your day-to-day. Well, and people discover working with the missionaries that Mother Teresa is a great humanitarian, and she was very careful to, I, I don't, to, to win people to Christ and to baptism Mm-hmm. by attraction, not promotion. She wasn't trying to sell something. Yeah. She wasn't proselytizing. She didn't force anybody or... You can have you know, a bed in can, our exactly. house if you, uh, if you convert. <laughs> right. And, um, and so she was very respectful, and she took care of anybody who was mm-hmm. poor. It wasn't like, hey, let's find the Christians and help yeah. them or something like that. Not at all. 
so she's she's very she's a human humanitarian. She values the dignity of human life, and um, and so that attracts people. But what a lot of people don't know, if they look at her as like a great hero of social services, which I don't know that she's not. But the reason that she served the poorest of the poor was out of um, starting in the chapel. She had like their life is contemplative and it's about meeting Jesus in prayer and then meeting Jesus in the poorest of the poor. So the reason you love so much and you're is, is because you're seeking your beloved mm. in um, service of these, of the poorest of the poor, because the poorest of the poor are not easy to serve. And, but their fuel, they is Jesus saying, I was naked and you clothed me. I was hungry and you fed me, you know, and just, a kind of literal interpretation of that, mm-hmm. that Jesus is somehow incarnate in the poor. You know, I don't, it, theologically, that can get kind of tricky, so yeah. I won't go too far down <laughs> that, that road. But, okay, so I want to get back to, the, really bringing up Mother Teresa was just to celebrate oh, so that her, wasn't even her the topic. Feast. That's not even the topic. We're halfway but, in. <laughs> it's, Cheers, Mother um, Teresa. Well, no, I mean, yeah. I, don't, I don't know that um, yeah. they're opposed or something <laughs> like that, but... I wanted to j- just recognize, so take it back to this, um, the years of Martin Luther and the Reformation. Okay, so early 1500s, I think yep. it's 1509, he posts the 95 Theses in, in the Cathedral of Wittenberg and really starts off, it kind of lights the spark like a spark plug that's, you know, catches fire. And, um, not to say that there wasn't unrest. There's unrest in every age. There's mm-hmm. you know problems and corrections, and um, there's been controversy throughout the history of the church. There's been schisms in um, every few centuries, and it's n- kind of nothing new. And um, this one had a, a big effect because of globalization and the spread of the gospels to the to the point where you have a third of the of the globe that's somehow calling itself Christian or people calling themselves Christian and, uh, but different, all these different kinds, mm-hmm. you know? So, all right. So we're, we're back there. So I want to just kind of clarify a couple or make a few points about that time. And hopefully this is sorting out some of the confusion and then also, um, celebrating something of the, what was reformed by the reformation. Okay. So first thing, um, Luther is commonly praised for writing the first German translation of the Bible yeah. um, because he wanted the average um, everyday person to be able to read and have access to the Bible. Um, that second part that he valued everybody having access to the Bible is true. The first part, <laughs> not true at all. He did not... He did not transform or translate who was the well he did translate he did translate the bible but he was not the first to translate into german there was a bishop in the sixth century Mm -hmm. who had already translated the bible into german but i guess more relevantly at uh, at the time there had already been a publication so he comes around in 1506 there was already a in 1466 this uh, I'm looking at a fact on Google, your buddy Google. <laughs> Johannes Mentelin published the first printed Bible in the German language, the Mentelin Bible, and it was right a printed 
mm-hmm. vernacular Bible for the sake of the distribution. Now, there's no Protestants yet, yeah. and this was probably commissioned by some Catholic bishop. And um, was it widespread? Obviously not. Luther was responding to something that he saw as mm-hmm. like missing. And um, But that piece is, it, most of his gripes were otherwise, although that became something very important, was the way that that non-Catholic Christians understood the Bible yeah. and the way that it... Well, and that started, I mean, Anglicanism, after that split, there had already been translations into English. Of yeah, Tyndale Bible is the first one um, there. But then it's like, okay, this is our Bible now. We're going to do it in English. They're going to do it in German. They'll do it in Dutch or something. Yeah, the average. And then the part of the myth is like the Catholic Church was trying to keep the Bible away from people. And this is just not really true. Um, The Bibles were super expensive. You know, a $10,000 Bible, you could go buy a Harley or whatever, (laughs) a chariot with horses or you can buy a Bible. Most people did not buy the Bible. The, the monasteries had a Bible. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't think they refused access, but it just wasn't part of the culture. And then there were sometimes chains that would cha- they would chain the Bible down, but that was to keep it from being stolen. It's a $10,000 Bible. Yeah, it's a $10,000. We've got some very fancy Bibles in our library. We wouldn't like to walk away. <laughs> yeah. Well, these aren't, and they're not gold-plated or yeah. anything. It's just that the to, value of the fact it was completed script you know handwritten yeah before uh, the we, printing we had press the you had to employ somebody for years yep. to copy a bible for you um and it, it most often happened within the monasteries okay so the point be the point being i just wanted to clarify this thing about um the how it wasn't it it wasn't luther that was the first to say okay the bible should be accessible to the average person. Now, the, the Latin Vulgate was the uh, privileged translation of the Bible. It had been declared, this is what we're, this is our standard. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we had, we had the Greek scripture, we had Aramaic, we had Hebrew. Yeah. yeah. So. And then there were probably like local, mm-hmm. you know, vernacular translations. Okay, so that's just a, a little clarification of the... Um, Mythbuster, <laughs> yeah, Mythbuster. I'm not good at that type of, or that period of history. Uh, as far as there's so many, um, I'd say myths and counter myths in that era, where it's like you know, oh, the Catholics did this, and this is why we're doing it, and totally not true. And then, but I think sometimes Catholics are guilty of like coming up with their own myth to counteract the the slander or whatever it is. And so there's a lot of like he said, she said, who, <laughs> yeah, who who uh, who did what, um, especially with like scripture and vernacular and. Um, somewhat pertinent today. People are still fighting over, you know, the the oh, proper yeah. language of liturgy and oh, everything. So. And people argue about anything. Um, okay, so then you have this popularization of the Bible and this emphasis on the Bible with among the reformers. Um, what do you got? You got Luther, Zwingli, Calvin, and Calvin. They're the right? big. They're the big three. They're the big three. And then you got uh, the king who called himself Pope over there in England. Um, okay, so the, the reformers want to emphasize the Bible, and the, a principle kind of emerges that says that there's, um, it, I think it's one term that is used is perspicuity of the Bible, and that is that it is simple, 
that the way that the, the Holy Spirit revealed the revelation in the Bible is that it's written in a very simple way that can be interpreted by, uh, or that can be read and understood by everybody, and is correctly interpreted by the gift of the Holy Spirit to the reader. So um, every Christian has that gift of the Holy Spirit. We believe that, you know, comes from mm-hmm. baptism. And then that's like the interpretive key. So if you read the Bible and you have that Holy Spirit, you'll understand it the way that it's meant to be understood. Yeah. I think one of the funny things with those big three is we think of, oh, the Protestant Reformation was kind of this cohesive movement against the Catholics. But the only thing that united them was their dislike of the Catholics. Like well, they were, fight, they were baptism. Fighting. Yeah, well, that's it. Well, that's it. <laughs> and the but, creed. But they were fighting with each other. Right? It's true. Yeah. Um, and so it wasn't like, oh, they were all in this thing together. They were you know, condemning each other for just as much. Yeah. And um, it just shows that that, that interpretation, uh, if it, it becomes hyper-subjectivized, um, it shows that, I mean, that you see the problem. Well, the and there. right. Is it ha- there's a thousand denominations yeah. of Christians now. Yeah. Um, would we all agree about the, the correct interpretation if we all have the Holy Spirit? Now we yeah. all do. Yeah. So it poses a problem, it does. right? And so many different ways of, of reading mm-hmm. uh, the same text, right? And we all believe that it's inspired, that somehow the Holy Spirit inspired writers to write these things. Uh, or um, And even what that means is kind of controversial. But um, yeah, there's, there's this common ethic, but it's true. The perspic- perspicuity principle of this Bible is can be understood by everybody perfectly individually. It becomes, yeah, yeah real, a real problem. Well, it's super funny with that is, I mean, uh, so often you can even turn to scriptural um, accounts to, to reject certain things like this. If you want to go that route, you can go with the Ethiopian uh, who's reading scripture, and uh, I think it's um, Philip gets yep, kind of exactly. goes, goes to see him, and he's like, do you understand what you're reading? He says, how could I without a teacher? You know, how, do, how could mm-hmm. I without somebody to unpack this for me, to, to show me what the revelation means? Um, and then once it's explained, that's the gift of faith being given over. And he says, oh, okay, well, now what's preventing me from being baptized? Um, but there's like a, yeah. an authority of the interpretive key of the apostle. Yeah. Um, that, I mean, that's in Scripture. So if Scripture is the ultimate authority— now we're saying right. the apostle is the one to interpret. But you could you could interpret that differently, right? So you could say that's because he's a Christian. He's already given his life to Jesus. He's already been baptized. So he can teach the guy who hasn't and then baptize them. Or you can say that's because he's an apostle. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was chosen by Jesus for a mission and set apart. So at the beginning of Acts of the Apostles, they it, it's very clear that there's supposed to be 12 leaders that are these apostles. So maybe they're the ones who have authority and then they can give it to someone like like this yeah. Philip. And um, so that can be That's a tricky. little complex, but I like it. It's, it's really important and relevant that Cornelius, that the Ethiopian eunuch, that all these characters could not just stumble on a book and then understand everything. It doesn't work like that. That's not how the reality of the Christian encounter works. Um Okay, so you got these three reformers. I I would argue, and this is a long, and it would take a lot of um, I don't know books to write <laughs> this thing. Get started. But that uh, the 
the gripes were not necessarily religious so much as they were sociopolitical. Mm-hmm. So you have all these different nation groups that have been feuding for a long time. And it was a statement. It was like a tribal thing to say, okay, nope, now we're, we're Lutheran. Yeah. And because our enemy is Catholic. Mm-hmm. And the other nation, and they were always flopping and switching. Yeah, Sweden, too, my, it's, my it's like the, homeland, they were Catholic one day and then they were Lutheran like the next. Who was the Catholic or the prince or whoever that was in charge and, you know, protecting or funding? Yeah. You know. And it was like, okay, well, if Denmark, they're our enemy. So if they're going Lutheran, no, we're Catholic. <laughs> and then they switch and they decide, oh, because they're enemies with the, you know, the next country. And, so it was. It, I had a lot to do with uh, leaders yeah. who were making decisions for everybody, and were making it on the basis of socioeconomic reasons. Yeah. Now, I don't think that's everything that's because we thing. we really do disagree about theology. But and there's, um, I mean, it, it's not the first time in the history of the church. It's 1500s in you know around a thousand, 1054, when we say the Great Schism happened. A lot of that's around tensions between Constantinople being the you know, the new, uh, what they would call the new Rome, the new central power of the empire, and then old Rome. And so uh, the kind of the patriarch, the bishop in Constantinople was kind of claiming co-equal authority with old Rome because we're in new Rome and basing the the ecclesial power in, uh, in the power of the most powerful city in the empire. So we've been doing this kind of like, and it was tied into oh yeah well um, you can't get away from it which is funny because like the the earliest uh, accounts of the primacy of Peter from like Irenaeus in the late hundreds um, all before uh, Constantine converts to Catholicism um, or Christianity I guess at the time pointed to Peter as the source because he was uh, the principal apostle appointed by Christ and he went to Rome so his see his successor uh, would be the one who maintained this primacy. So that's why Rome had it, not because Rome was the most important city in the empire. There was no political power for the Christians at that point. They were still a persecuted minority in Rome. Mm. Uh, But then we have these political kind of, as the church gets stronger, there's like, oh, we're jockeying for power now. And that's where the princes come in and the emperors or the kings want to like influence authority over the church because... Yeah, they got to make all these decisions. And so in God's providence, he knows that becoming a human being and uh, becoming present in the world, this incarnational principle, this incarn- the reality of God becoming a human being, and then setting up a community of the church that is human and is interacting with people who care, who don't care, who's um, with Christians who are imperfect and who have grace at work and the things are complex and, and messy, but sometimes they're complicated by that, all that stuff. So um, back to the Bible. So the Bible has this, has this interest in the 16th century where the reformers are saying um, we ought to ground what we're, what we're, uh, what we know of God, our relationship with God with this these scriptures, this book, this Bible, and or this book filled with a lot of books, and and then this idea of everyone can understand this individually perfectly, and that just creates a problem and attention. So along comes the Council of Trent, 
Mm-hmm. Okay, so the in response, at first they thought, okay, well, these are local problems. We'll just fix them in, in Germany or in um, in Switzerland or, you know, wherever they're happening. Where's Calvin? No, Calvin's uh, Switzerland. Zwingli, Switzerland. Oh, man. Okay. I can't remember. Now I'm betraying my ignorance here. Okay, so the the Council of Trent comes along in 1546 it begins in 1546 and it's going to last the next um, 17 years and this is the bishops from all around the world it's an ecumenical council so that means they're going to gather all the bishops from around the world these leaders of local churches and they represent all of their people and they're going to discuss well how do we respond to this this reformation that has really split christianity throughout europe and um and uh, and then, like, what do we do about this? these controversies that have come up? And the response, I think, is very interesting. And this is, like, basically the topic. Um, how far are we now? <laughs> 40 minutes in. Here's the topic. Hey, baby. I love it. Uh, Long-form podcast. Well, here's the, well, at least the things that I, I think are very interesting. And that is that the Catholic Church responds with this ecumenical council after whatever. They're doing three sessions, no, five sessions. Lots of sessions. They're getting together yeah. after a few years of break 17 each time. years. Yeah, over the course of 17 years. And they come up with two basic um, kind of resolves and proclamations. And one says, well, they have, they have various, but the two that I want to point out are that the authority of, for interpreti- interpreting Scripture belongs to the church and is exercised by the ordinary magisterium of the church, which to that's that could be explained in a very long you know podcast. But um, magisterium is kind of a um, demonized word these days. It just means teaching, mm-hmm. right? Okay, the teaching. Magister. And yeah, and who are the teachers? So it comes from Jesus assuring his apostles and his disciples, the Holy Spirit will inspire you. I have much more to say, but the Holy Spirit will guide you and inspire you once I'm gone. And then the question becomes, well, who's hearing that Holy Spirit and who has it been given to? And the tradition, the longstanding tradition, and lots of indications in the New Testament point to the direction that there are um, there's a kind of a privileged teaching office given to selected leaders and that they have to pray about that and kind of you know move in that direction. So that's reiterated at the Council of Trent to say that interpretation of the scriptures according to the Holy Spirit isn't just an individual project and is won't be done accurately by every individual and um, isn't protected in a real privileged way. And so there has to be a kind of a teaching authority. And so they say, okay, this is the authority of the official teachers, the, the bishops throughout the world who yeah, represent which in the people. Its most, um I guess, pure or most potent form is the bishops in communion. Yeah. So the bishops at the council declaring something together. Yeah. Um, not always just like, you know, the bishop over here says something and over there says something, and, but the magisterium together. Right. Um, interpreting and what the church has held, you know, uh, what the fathers have held, you know, that type of magisterium. Yeah. Uh, is, is super powerful, but also grounding. Yeah. And, and helps answer And authoritative. Question. That's where it comes from is that the yeah. bishops get together. Um, 
Okay, so that's that's the first point. And then the other point, and this is where I want to just praise Luther and praise the the Reformation. And this is the, the piece that I wanted to give as a gift to my cousin <laughs> and her family, you know, to the girls, Gwyneth and Lydia, that the at the Council of Trent, this is like 40 years after um, after Luther's theses and this whole revolution, the the Catholic Church or the bishops in, you know, Catholic bishops all around the world collected at this council, they require, one of the great kind of moves that they make is that they require every bishop in every diocese around the world that was uh, right existing at the time to to spend money to set aside funds in order to employ a Bible school. So they had to employ a, a, a teacher or a school, but at least a teacher who is well educated in the scriptures and then can, can, can teach the public in that diocese. So they would go mm. whatever parish to parish, town to town, and they would teach people about the Bible, you know, and it, it's in one part, a, this is a huge investment, by the way, you know, demanding that everybody spend lots yeah. and lots of money in order to educate this um, these teachers, and then to educate the faithful. One in one part, it was an acknowledgement of what these reformers were critiquing, that people are not well educated in the Bible. They're not well educated in their understanding of the faith. You could say catechesis more broadly, but specifically in the Bible. Yeah. Because you can teach people the devotions, you can teach people the kind of the practices, and they're true and they're important. But this was saying, okay, biblical knowledge is um, somehow essential to spreading the the gospel and then um, grounding it in the truth. You know, so that we don't have these kind of great divisions. Part of that blow up and the divisions that happened all over Europe and then have really continued is that there wasn't a lot of education about the Bible. Mm-hmm. So you get everybody, this guy over there saying, well, the Bible says, or God says, whatever, and you still hear that all over the place today. But this biblical literacy was a move that was made probably simply because there was a push from the Reformation. Yeah. And, uh, well, and it's they, beautiful. It's a humble acknowledgement of the value of um, you know Luther yeah. and friends. We talk about the um, the Catholic reformers um, after kind of Luther. You've got these these orders, these heroes. Um, you've got kind of ref- reforms in religious life. You've got the Jesuits come up as a as a evangelization teaching you know missionary order, um, and you've got these you know great movements that come out of this because there was there were problems there were errors you know luther wasn't unfounded in his critique sure um he left uh left the umbrella <laughs> yeah <laughs> and so i'm not say, here to praise him um, on you know oh yeah yeah and i didn't think you were you but, know but just he, for there's, everything there's a like certain bit of like blank check here eventually, buddy. yeah eventually we we because of tied up with politics with other things you know that's a whole other podcast luther himself could be one but mm-hmm. um you know there's there was legitimate reform that needed to happen, right? And the church responded and said, okay, we're going to actually reform here. Yeah. And then we see scripture, um, which again was, you know, highlighted in, in Vatican II. That's right. Um, which we're, we're still unpacking. 
um, that ecumenical council. Yeah. Of what you know, um, and we've got you know encyclical letters on on scripture and uh, God is the Word, and there's you know theological studies happening there's exegetical studies like you were doing there's popular bible studies we have the yeah. biblical school here in denver the guest institute you yeah know. it's right at the center of and this this when the bishops got together in this century and the world is you know it's we this is a global reality now it's not just the european mm-hmm. you know reality that it was then um the, the church is always whole at every council but this one really represents all kinds of cultures and nations and peoples and and they all get together, and they, at the Second Vatican Council, there are four constitutions that are written to, to, to describe what the Church is. And one of those four is Dei Verbum on divine revelation and the, the scriptures. And so there's this really centralizing move. Now, I don't know what's going to happen in the next, what, 3,000 years <laughs> of the Church, but I like that at this point we've become grounded in valuing the Bible. You know, we don't understand the Bible the same way that all the all of the other Christians do necessarily. It's complicated and nuanced. Um, but we it's just, it's of central value. And the the Second Vatican Council, Dei Verbum said that study of scripture is the soul of theology. This mm-hmm. is the soul of theology. This is what animates it. This is what drives it. This is essential to the life of theology. And this is a value that I'm really happy that we've celebrated. You know, I, from my days in Bible school, the B-I-B-L-E, yeah, that's the book for me. I'm glad that I can sing that as a Catholic and really, and really mean it. I hope that everybody learns Scripture really well. And I think there's things in our time, yeah, like you said, there's all kinds of ways to learn Scripture. I especially want to thank uh, Father Mike Schmitz, Who's kind of a rival at one point, but <laughs> it's way outpaced us, and now there's no rivalry. That I have to far beyond throw a thank you toward you know Bible in North a year. Minnesota. But he he came up with this podcast Bible in a year. But that's standing on the the shoulders of giants, you know, in our time. Doctor Scott mm-hmm. Hahn, Doctor Jeff Cavins up there in Minnesota probably informed most of his yeah. uh, Father Mike Schmidt stuff, and um, and then researchers, and then really just the weight of tradition. Mm-hmm. That led them to love of scriptures. So, anyway, that's the that's the celebration. I think there's something in unit in, in unifying us around the Bible and our love for the Bible, and then I think there's something that unifies us in the simple call to love the poor and to respond to Jesus' call to love the poor. They they kind of cut yeah. through all of this controversy and who are the leaders and who are the big dogs and all this stuff and things that we can really share our love for. I think it's really funny that uh, one of the big divides that I don't know if is really true at the time but kind of dis- isn't really true now is the uh, the faith versus works divide. Mm-hmm. And it's funny that you see somebody operating in Christ, in the Spirit, their works are seen, and those works are, are seen as united to charity, which is the love of God dwelling in us, and those works of Mother Teresa, those works of John Paul II inspire people, um, Catholic and non, um, to say, wow, they're, they're doing something. Uh, something is animating them that's, that's different. Um, so there's something in that work, but that work is from receiving the word first, you know. And I love what you said about Mother Teresa, that they meditate on, on Christ, who Christ is the, the image of God, the Father, the... Uh, 
the only begotten Son, the Word, the Word that was with God at the beginning. Um, so you med- meditate on him, and then they meditate, and they say, okay, the Word said, whatever you do to these least of mine, you do to me. And they said, oh, we want to love you, so we're going to go love you in these least of yours. Um, so it's this prayer, faith, Faith spurs hope, hope and action. Now we're acting. Action inspires and, you know, amount of conversions through, through the MCs, you know. Yeah. Praise God. So everybody, in honor of Mother Teresa, you can go and read some Bible. Read some Bible. I don't think you need somebody holding your hand for yeah. the Bible all the time, but it can get complicated in yeah. the weeds. Oh, and so when it gets complicated and you're asking questions. Read the Gospels. Like, go, go find those. But I think there's a – the church – the church in the new lectionary um, that you receive at mass, like there's a reason to it. There's it's not just randomly selected uh, excerpts from the Bible for you on Sunday, especially the Old Testament and the New Testament reading. Uh, usually, almost always have a, a pretty clear connection, but they've got a connection. So dig into that, see what they're trying to say. Yeah. What are we saying about the Old Testament being fulfilled in the new, and the the Old Testament being present in the new? You know, um, and uh, there's ask the good questions discover it, talk about it, and then go find a, a Philip or a Father Mike Rapp who can uh, no. expound it for yeah. you. Teach, well, God bless all the Bible <laughs> teachers out there too. Okay, that's my shout-out. The Johnson family, Dan and Sarah, mm. Gwyneth, Lydia, and all the Obingers too. Uh, yeah. Aunt Cindy and Uncle Wally. <laughs> Three. This is a lot of shout-outs. I... Um, <laughs> Yeah, I don't have any again. Oh. I'm so bad at this. I'm never prepared for the shout-outs. I need to I'm going to make list. you a list. I used to be that guy, list. Jacob. I'll, I'll, I'll give you a pass. All right. Well, shout-out Mother Teresa. Shout-out those uh, the, the two Spaniards that I can't remember their names from Calcutta. There you go. Uh, there's also a group of youth that were out there with us that were super cool. They were just kind of like high schoolers out there with uh, with their school, and they were a lot of fun. So Right on. Okay, everybody go eat curry. Celebrate the feast. Uh, although you'll be listening to this in a yeah, month. This is or like something. a week. No, this will be this will be next uh, this week. So oh, yeah, you can eat right. curry for the feast that was like three or four days ago. Yay! Happy feast. Cheers.